Take your Bibles, if you would, tonight and turn to the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk. When's the last time you read the book of Habakkuk? You don't have to answer that. But we're going to talk about that for a few weeks as we dig into this book. Habakkuk, it's uh, after Genesis, just before Matthew. So just go between those two and you'll find, you'll find the book. The call came in about 8 a.m. on a Saturday morning. One of my employees, he was 18 years old, had shot himself fatally the night before. Uh, he was supposed to work. That was my day off, and so I was at home when I took the call, and my assistant manager was uh, waiting on him to get to work to uh, work that day, and I had to call um, her, and we were really all like family, uh, very close, and I had to tell her what happened. Uh, I was asked to represent our company uh, and speak for a moment at the funeral, and on the faces at the funeral were the same questions I got as I talked to people afterwards. The same uh, question that I've got over, over the years when these type of things happen. Why? Why did God let this happen? Interestingly enough, Josh, which was that young man's name, asked me that very question a few months prior to this when I was talking to him about the Lord one day and, and uh, his mother had died when he was young and he asked that question. Why did God let my mom die when I was just a kid? Couldn't understand that. It was not the first time, nor will it be the last time, that I'll hear that question asked, and probably you won't either. It's not the last time for you either, I should say. When you look at the questions of life, and as you ponder the problems of living in a death-sentence generation, because that's what we're doing. We're living in a generation where every single one of us have a death sentence on us. And uh, even the best Christian sometimes looks up and cries, Why? Why now? Why me? Why this? Why? The question rings across the centuries, through every generation, and it's a question that does not have an easy answer. The godliest believers have sometimes wondered about the ways of God. And can I tell you, friend, if Job never got a real answer... <laughs> never got a completely straight answer, what can I expect? But as I read the Bible, I don't think there is any single answer to that question. You get a different answer in Genesis and Job and Psalms and Ecclesiastes. Uh, yet uh, then the Gospels present Jesus Christ as uh, whose coming really alters the way we think of, about anything and everything in the Bible. The book of Revelation shows the Lord's final victory at the end and the defeat of evil. And I'm not saying that these different perspectives contradict each other, not at all. But there are different ways for us to look at it. The problem with human suffering is so vast that we need different ways to think about it and different ways to look at it. And that's where the book of Habakkuk comes in. For a few weeks, we're going to dig into this book. It's a short book. It was written just before the world caved in for the nation of Judah. Habakkuk is squeezed in between Nahum and Zephaniah, and it opens with Habakkuk having a complaint. It's like Psalm 73, why do the wicked prosper? 
Why do they continually go unpunished? It's a question we've probably all asked in some shape or form. If the complaint is made to the Lord in recognition that he's in charge, I mean, that, that basic premise is in the questions that Habakkuk asks. God is in charge. And since you're in charge, why? Why are the things happening the way they're happening? This little book, it's a major message from a minor prophet. There are 17 prophetic books in the Old Testament, five major prophets, and 12 minor prophets. Now, they're not called major and minor because one is more important than the other. We call them major and minor because of the size of the books. And uh, in my Bible, the five major prophets cover 252 pages, and the 12 minor prophets cover only 59 pages. And so that's why they're called minor prophets versus major prophets. We're talking about short books here. The book of Habakkuk carries only 56 verses spanning over three chapters. And although he is a minor prophet, there's nothing minor about his message. He writes about a topic that we all think about, eventually, maybe habitually, wondering why. Habakkuk is unique because it, re it, it records a dialogue between a man and God. For example, Isaiah receives a message from God. Habakkuk has a conversation with God, and we get to be privy to it. If you've ever felt like you have a few questions for God, I don't know if you've ever been there. I got a few questions. This is the book for you. Uh, one preacher called Habakkuk the man with a question mark for a brain, because that's what he did. He asked questions, and he questioned some things about what was going on. Here's a bit of background. The year was around 605 B.C. The good king, Josiah, dies in 609 B.C., and uh, Judah then degrades into a cesspool of corruption, of immorality and idolatry. The people seemed determined to go on a path of their own destruction. It was as if the nation had a death wish and no use for God at all. And enter, at that point, Habakkuk. About the man, we know almost nothing. We assume he was around 30 years old, but that's just a guess. He was a contemporary of Ezekiel and Jeremiah, and he intersected with Daniel's life, but his was toward the end, and Daniel uh, was when Daniel's life began. But Habakkuk had a burden, and many of us know what it's like to have a burden. An erring child, a lost loved one, uh, these things can weigh us down. And for Habakkuk, it was the sins of the people of Judah that were a lead weight on his heart. The silence of God in the face of human suffering, of injustice and despair, this is what defined the burden in Habakkuk's heart. That's a tough thing. When terrible things are happening, and God seems to be silent, that's why he prayed in verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry? And thou wilt not hear. Let's read a few verses here, actually. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11 of Habakkuk chapter 1. Have I given you enough time to find it? <laughs> All right, hopefully we've got it. The burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see, O Lord, how long will I cry? 
How long shall I cry, and thou wilt not hear? Even cry out unto thee of violence, and thou wilt not save me. Why dost thou show me iniquity, and cause me to hold, behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and there are things uh, there are there, and there are that raise up strife and contention. <clears throat> Therefore the law is slacked, and judgment doth never go forth, for the wicked doth compass about the righteous, wherefore wrong judgment proceedeth. Behold ye among the heathen, and regard, and wonder marvelously. For I will work a work in your days, which ye shall not believe, and though it be told to you. For lo, I will rise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land, to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful, their judgment and their dignity shall proceed of themselves. Their horses also are swifter than the leopards and are more fierce than the evening wolves. And their horsemen shall spread themselves and the horsemen shall come from far and shall fly as the eagle that hasteth to eat. They shall come all for violence. Their faces shall sup up as the east wind and they shall gather the captivity as the sand. And they shall scoff at the kings and the princes shall be a scorn unto them. And they shall deride every stronghold for they shall heap dust and take it. Then shall his mind change, and he shall pass over and offend, imputing this his power unto his God. I'm sorry I asked, Lord. That's probably what Habakkuk could say at this point. Father, I ask you to use this. Very, Really, it's a contemporary book, if we think about it, dealing with many of the same things. We ask, Lord, that you would apply this to our life. In Jesus' name, amen. When Habakkuk saw the terrible moral decline of Judah, he prayed that God do something. Maybe he thought God could raise up another good king to lead the people the right direction. By the way, may I say that electing the right person is not going to fix America? I wish it would. I'd like to believe that. I'd like to... We, you know, there's a part of me, I'm a very political animal. I like politics. And uh, I like to uh, see uh, when good men get in and bad men don't get in. But uh, back in the days when we voted, uh, were able to vote, that was a neat thing to watch. But uh, those, that's not going to be the fixing of our nation to get the right person in there. Morality never healed a nation. It never will. Uh, what heals a nation is for God's people to get right. For, uh, Second Chronicles 7.14 talks, talks about that. But he thought maybe God could put another king in to lead the people. Little did he know that the answer would come by way of the hated Babylonians. So Habakkuk lived in confusing times. So do we. He lived in times really not that much different than what we're dealing with. We all need a direction in the face of confusing times. Habakkuk helps us find faith strong enough for our own troubling age that we live in. Habakkuk wrote out his argument with God in three short chapters. And here's an outline if you would want to outline the book of Habakkuk. You could say chapter 1 is faith tested. Chapter 2 is faith taught. Chapter 3 is faith triumphant. Or you could say chapter 1 is argument. Chapter 2 is answer, chapter 3 is acceptance, however you would like to uh, lay those out. But along the way, Habakkuk experiences a change. He moves from fear to faith. He moves from burden to blessing. 
He moves from confusion to confidence and from worry to worship. Uh, J. Vernon McGee said that Habakkuk is a a book that starts with a question mark and ends with an exclamation point. It's a neat book. In many ways, this ancient book raises modern questions that we wrestle with today. Have you ever asked or been asked, where is God? Where is God when the things happen that happen? When we're up against problems that seem to have no human solution, people tend to look to heaven and ask, why don't you do something about it? Where are you? You read the book of Psalms, you find that theme many times. David, why are you so far from me? Ask that. He felt those things even as we do as well. As the book opens, Habakkuk is confused and agitated. There's several issues that haunt him. Three that I want to bring up. Uh, first of all, his first issue is unanswered prayer. Look at verse 2 and 3. How long shall I cry and thou wilt not hear? How even cry out unto thee of violence and thou wilt not save? Consider the things going on in the world today. The world that we live in. Murder. Corruption in high places. Sexual perversion. There was a list just released of uh, Epstein's list was just released. And we find that to our great shock that some of our leaders weren't of the high moral character that they claimed they were. We have looting. We have crime. The same things, many of the same things that were happening in Habakkuk's day. And as he sees all the evil around him, he basically asks God, how can you let these things go on? How long are we going to cry and you not hear? Sometimes we wonder about God's seeming inactivity. Where is God when we need Him? Godly parents praying for wayward children. I've been there. Many of you have as well. He or she was raised in church. They know the Bible, yet they left home and left all that behind. And for many years sometimes, we pray and pray and pray, and it's seemingly to no avail. A wife praying for her husband who left her after years of marriage seeming totally unreachable. A husband praying for his wife who has a terminal illness. A young man who prays for deliverance from a devastating uh, uh, an addiction or a temptation. And the struggle never seems to end. The more he prays, the more the temptation, uh, the more harder it becomes. Just a week ago, our friends, real close friends of ours that we went to Bible college with and have stayed in touch with over the years. They lost a young mother in childbirth. My friend Tom, it's his daughter-in-law. And uh, so their son lost his wife, and now this young dad is left alone with a baby that's just clinging to life barely. We cry with the psalmist in Psalm 10.1. Why, O Lord, do you stand afar off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Now, we understand that God doesn't do that. Yet, isn't that how we feel sometimes? And that's how Habakkuk felt in the face of unanswered prayer. The second issue that bothered him was uncontrolled perversity. Look at verse number 4. Therefore, the law is slacked, and judgment doth never go forth. For the wicked doth compass about the righteous. Therefore, wrong judgment proceedeth. If you wanted to bring this into modern-day terminology, I'll just say one word, hunter. I'll just let you go with that. The law is ignored. 
and judgment never comes. That's what he's uh, talking about here. Uh, and so the lawlessness, when lawlessness prevails, no one is safe. And here he cries out about the injustice of it all. He looks out across the world at that day and he sees violence, he sees injustice, he sees strife and contention, and the law is not enforced, there's no legal protection. Innocent people were sentenced as guilty. The courts are manipulated by selfish lawyers and cruel officials. The whole nation was suffering because of the evils of the government, yet God seemed to be doing nothing about it. Essentially, it was Chicago. That's essentially what was going on here. And God seems to do nothing about it. And this is a bothering to him. This is a, an issue that he's having trouble with. The third issue he's dealing with is an, uh, is an unexpected answer. Because he faces this issue when God answers him. Now, look at verse number 5. Behold ye among the heathen and regard, and wonder marvelously. For I will do a work, uh, I will work a work in your days, which you will not believe though it be told you. Hey, God says, I will do something that you will not believe. If that verse stopped there, we might think, whew, maybe it's revival. In fact, preachers use this verse at revival times. I've seen it before where they use this verse uh, in, as a basis, basically, for praying revival in our day. If the, if the passage stopped right there, it may seem like God is about to send a mighty spiritual awakening to this nation. And we ought to pray for revival. That's not what this verse is about. That's not what it's talking about. God's going to send something, but it's not a revival. Look what he says in verse 6. For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. The Chaldeans, these were the Babylonians, and the Chaldeans and Babylonians are like Americans and U.S. citizens. I mean, kind of one and the same. Nothing God said would have made, I don't know if it surprised him, but it certainly is, is a terrible thing for Habakkuk to hear. Nothing could, could have said is worse than this. He knew about the Babylonians. Everyone knew about the Babylonians. They were a horrible, horrible people. They were the most hated and feared nation on earth. Under the leadership of King Nebuchadnezzar, the armies plundered the nations around them. No one could stand against them or defeat them. They were cruel, vicious, and insatiable in their appetite for destruction. If they wanted a city, they took a city. If they wanted a province, they took a province. If they wanted a nation, they just took that nation. They swept across the ancient Near East with a brutality that was unimaginable. If a conquered city resisted, you might find a pile of skulls in the city square just to be a, a demonstration to anybody else that wanted to rebel against them. They poked out the eyes of conquered kings and marched rulers off in chains, sometimes putting hooks in their jaws uh, to lead them along. They were a nasty, horrible people. Look how God describes them in these verses. In verse number 6, they were bitter and hasty. Number 7, terrible and dreadful. In 7, also a law unto themselves. In verse number 8 through 10, they're swift as leopards, ravenous as wolves. They swoop on their prey like eagles dropping from the sky. They gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings. They laugh at fortified cities. And then in verse 11, God's ultimate indictment of them, their strength 
is their God. The point I'm trying to make is these were a nasty, nasty people, and God knew how bad they were. He's not calling in Boy Scouts to do the job. When God decides to judge Jude, judge Judah, not judge Judy, but judge Judah, he brings in the nastiest bully on the block. Sometimes things have to get worse before they get better. And I want you to think about, because none of this would make sense to Habakkuk. It's like us praying for our nation and God says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to send in Al-Qaeda to judge America. And because you didn't respect my law, you're going to now have to live under Sharia law. That's exactly what God's message would have sounded like to Habakkuk. Couldn't believe what he heard. Now, what if these things must happen? Often in the Bible, things had to get worse before they get better. And is that where uh, the point we've come to in America? We need a revival in this country. How many times have we said that? How many times? I remember hearing that when I first started going to church services. I remember specifically one night we had an America-based uh, kind of a themed uh, revival service going on in a different church. And it was the late 80s, and uh, we, the preacher was preaching, Jack Mount, I remember it was actually the preacher that night, and he was preaching, and he, was, uh, he said, there is no way we'll ever see the year 2000. Jesus is going to come back before then. Well, Jack Mount was wrong. He didn't come back, but uh, he did talk about the great need for revival in America, and we need revival in this country. But I often wonder, <laughs> with fear and trembling, what will it take? How many times do parents of a prodigal realize that he or she is going to have to hit rock bottom because sometimes it is only when we hit rock bottom that we ever look up? What if God allows this for a purpose? Because we as a nation have turned against God. We are a nation of collapsing moral standards. As a nation, we don't need, as I'm talking as a nation as a whole, I know there's still many godly people, and I thank God for that. But our nation as a whole, we don't need God. We're doing fine without Him, so we think. Some of you who are... It's shocking to me. I was just realized this a couple years ago. There are kids graduating from high school now that weren't alive during 9-11. Isn't that something? It just seems like such a short time ago for me. But... Do you remember 9-11? I don't know if you remember the Sunday after. It was quite a... Churches were loaded. Church, at, at least where I was out in Michigan at that time. Uh, people flocked to churches. There was a big bump in attendance for a short while. Millions of Americans responded to the terrorist attacks of 9-11 by going to a house of worship that next week. But very soon that attendance bump disappeared. A few weeks after that, everything went back to pretty much normal. I remember hearing words like, things will never be the same again. And yes, a lot of things changed as far as our rights and freedoms, but things got back to normal. And I'll tell you what happened in America after 9-11, and this is so important because it's something we have to realize. America turned toward God, but America did not turn to God. They, they looked His way for a little bit. But it didn't change anything in them. There was no repentance, and there's a big difference. Turning toward God is good, but it'll never last. Only turning to God will change a nation. And make no mistake, our nation 
is in trouble. We live in perilous times. Today, criminals are coddled. Judges slap repeat offenders on the wrist, often more concerned about their agendas than they are justice. The slaughter of unborn babies, condoned on the ground of a woman's right to choose. Pornography flourishing under the guise of free speech. Drug trafficking, prostitution, child abuse, political corruption, illegal aliens, and now uh, this transgender ideology that we're having to deal with that has been uh, has gotten a hold of our corporations and our governments. All these things contribute to a weakening, a growing moral weakness in our nation. It's the kind of permissive society that Habakkuk saw. He came to this conclusion. Look what he says in verse 4. The wicked doth compass about the righteous, therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. In other words, the wicked outnumbered and outvoted the righteous. No wonder his nation is on a collision course with disaster. So what's the answer? Well, there is an answer. We need a big God. <laughs> and thankfully, we have a big God. Everyone uh, here in this room is in one of three places tonight. You're either in confusing times and hard times, you're just coming out of a confusing time, or you're about to go into one, and you're welcome. Always come back when you want to be encouraged, amen? But you, uh, this, this little book of Habakkuk, keep it close by for when you need it, when you get into times like that, because you might not need it today, but you'll need it tomorrow or the day after tomorrow. But there's three important insights I want to give before we close tonight, and, and we'll look at uh, much more as we go throughout the book. Uh, but uh, there's three important insights I want to show you that we have to remember when dealing with difficult times like Habakkuk was looking at. The first one I want you to realize is we only see a part of the picture. We only see a part of the picture. When it comes to understanding what God's doing in the world, we're like little ants on a big painting. So picture yourself, you're an ant, and you're walking along this big painting. And uh, you crawl across the dark brown, and you think all of life is dark brown. And then as you keep crawling, you come to green and think, oh, that's much better. Now it is all green. But then comes another patch of brown and another pa patch of a different color. On we crawl, one color to another color, never realizing that if you would pull back, you would realize you're in the middle of a masterpiece. We don't see that because we're very little in the process of it. And so we just see a very small part of it. And one day we will discover that every color had its place. Nothing was out of place. There's a color for every stage of life's journey. When the painting is finished, we discover that we're a part of God's masterpiece all the time. We just we don't have the ability to pull back like God does. So this comes to trusting Him and realizing that He is in control. Secondly, God isn't limited to what we think He should do. Isn't that frustrating when you make plans and God doesn't honor them? <laughs> We've all been there before. We continually make the mistake of thinking that our plans and God's plans are the same plans. And they're often not the same plans at all. I heard this, uh, write your plans in pencil and then give God the eraser because he's liable to change them. And we, uh, we can make plans, but 
As somebody else said, you want to make God laugh, tell Him your plans. Here's another way we can say it. If your God always does what you want, He's probably not the God of the Bible. Because he doesn't, He's not at our beck and call. And He is not limited to what we think He should do. He is no man's servant. He's God. Psalm 115.3 But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever He hath pleased. There's a passage of Scripture in fact, be honest, this passage just bothers me a little bit. It's found in Luke chapter 4. Jesus is talking, and this is what he says in verse 25. But I tell you of a truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias when the heaven was shut up three days and six months, when great famine was throughout the land. But none unto none of them was Elias sent, save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. There's a lot of widows, he said. Many died, many starved. But there was only one that Elijah was sent to. Remember that widow and he gave her, uh, she fed him first and then she got meal and oil that never went empty. And she was saved. He goes on. And many lepers were in Israel at the time of Elias and the prophet and none of them were cleansed save Naaman the Syrian. That bothers me. Why does God save one and not another? Why does he heal one and not another? That bothers us sometimes, doesn't it? We don't understand. But I, I and this is this back to how I started out. This is why the question why comes up. I can tell you as a pastor, I get that question a lot. And I can't tell you why. I don't know. I, there is one, I always tell this, two concrete truths that I share with people that want to know why. And I believe this wholeheartedly. There is a God. 100%. The second fact, I'm not him. I can't answer the why. Uh, many times we'll go through our entire life and we're not able to answer the why. But thirdly, we need a bigger God. Habakkuk got confused because he thought he knew what God should do. In fact, in chapter 1, shows us that he's wrong twice. First, he thought that God was ignoring Judah's sin. He wasn't. Second, he couldn't believe that how God was uh, paying attention to Judah's sin using the Babylonians. But we need a God bigger than our puny ideas. We need a God whose ways uh, sometimes surprise us. We need to submit ourselves to God and not constantly think everything has to be done on our terms, on our calendar, and on our time frame. How big is your God? He's able to handle it. And I know tonight isn't the most encouraging of messages because we're kind of asking the question with no answers. That's why you got to come back next week. It's like VBS when we always get to the cliffhanger and we say, well, come back tomorrow night and you'll find all the kids. No, I'm telling you right now, come back next week and we'll continue because this book opens with questions. But as we work through it, we're going to find some answers to it and it'll help put things in perspective because it's interesting to me. You know, you look at the Bible and think how many years ago this was and yet it hasn't changed all that much. He was in a wicked society. We're in a wicked society. God loves everyone. He still loves everyone. And God will work through his people. He'll still work through his people. And so let's uh, learn as we go, and that'll be a blessing. Father, thank you for the passage that we've read. Thank you for...